All right. Uh, welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Austin Kohler, and this is the Smoke Eater Podcast. Today, I'm here with Captain Chris Pence of the Cab County Fire Rescue. Um, Cap, you want to hear yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, I started back in the uh, fire service in 96. Uh, I've been in everything from a volunteer at local fire department. Uh, worked for Hall County, uh, then City of Canton, and then moved on to uh, DeKalb in 09. Um, been pretty lucky with some of the people that I've been around through those years. Um, some really good officers and some really good drivers that were able to pass on information to me uh that's not in you know your your ifsta book so pretty lucky through that and then i've been in some really been at the right place at the right time to do some really cool stuff so oh yeah we're excited to hear about it i do want to uh point out two things uh one and 96 i was two so i hope that makes you feel good <laughs> also um you have the distinction of being the uh yeah 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 you would be the first person in the fire service or at least in in the cab that uh ever uh that introduced me to the art of uh, uh screwing with somebody yeah, i don't know <laughs> yeah. yeah you you you're you're number one so congratulations one of many but well thank you got you. me starting early on that so i appreciate that a, uh, I think uh, you you know in the fire service it, it is kind of like a uh, little bit of a of a club. You know it's okay for you to mess with me and me to mess with you, uh, but somebody outside of that club was to mess with one of us, and and it's it's on. It's on. And uh, that's that's one of the best things about the fire service, and I think I think it's still around now. Um, that's not one of the things that have that has gone away, but. Uh, there is still that part of the brotherhood that that's there that you, you can't mess with one of our guys. Mm -mm, not at all. I've actually had dudes, you know, people listen out on the, this uh, on duty, people listen out on the radio and hearing us getting fights or whatever on, on scene. And I've had multiple companies just all of a sudden, you know, show up. So it's, uh, it's alive and well, this where we work. Um, so, uh, what, what do you, what would you like to start with? You know, I'm, uh, I, I sent you the kind of the list that's the overview, but that's by no means kind of the rule. We can really talk about anything, anything you want to talk about. I'd usually just kind of pick a few from the list of questions that I, uh, you know, send out and just kind of see what happens. Is there anything that you uh, want to start off with? <clears throat> sure. I'll, I'd probably like to start off with, um, some of my most uh, memorable fires or responses that I think impacted me the most in my career. And uh, the first one that I can really think of, um, I would have only been in the fire service about four years. Um, it was a couple of hours before I was getting up to go to work and uh the volunteer pager went off for a working fire 
at the time I lived very close to the fire station. So I could, I could be there in about a minute or two. We were uh, going to be the second due engine there. As we're going, reports started coming in that it was an entrapment. It was a, a trailer fire, a double wide trailer. And uh, as we pull up in the engine, uh, two of the guys from the first arriving unit are diving out the window and they are nearly, nearly on fire. They're, they're off captain as they're diving out the window. And this is probably one of the most impactful statements I've ever had a chief say to me. I walk up to my volunteer fire chief and I said, chief, what do you, what do you need? And he said, go in there and get the kit. That's it. He didn't say, be safe, uh, anything like that. Uh, and I think now, you know, you have a lot of people in the fire service get confused with aggressive firefighting, sensible, aggressive firefighting. They get that confused with just being aggressive with, you know, n- no thought into the aggressiveness. There's, there's a reckless aggressiveness that can be out there, but there's a sensible aggressiveness. Uh, so go up to the window, use an attic ladder. Uh, this is before, uh, BES was a thing. So there was no, you know, training that I had had other than, you know, left hand, right hand wall search. Get in that window and go do something, get it done. Uh, hop through the window and I, I brought a, brought a inch and a half line in with me with a uh, 95 gallon per minute nozzle and um, yeah uh so go through the window and i'm i'm fighting the fire trying to trying to get it back and the thing that uh i remember most is uh when i found him i actually thought uh and this may predate you i thought it was a my buddy doll that i had that that does that does for me <laughs> okay when when i was a kid you had my buddy and kid sister <laughs> and so they were nearly life-sized uh doll you know so if you didn't mm-hmm. have a friend you could buy one and so <laughs> i thought that's i thought that's what it was and uh uh i get them get them out from the bed bring them over to the window Again, you know, I'm not, you know, four years in the fire service, you're, you're nowhere near proficient at anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this 12 year old kid's giving me trouble just getting him onto the bed, up into the window. Uh, one of the family members climbs up the ladder, had to put, push him down cause he was trying to get in there and, and help me get him out. Uh, one of the uh, firefighters that had rode with me, he wasn't a certified firefighter yet, but he had gear. He climbs up the ladder. I hand the kid off to him. 
you know, they end up flying them out uh, to Erlinger and Chattanooga from there to Cincinnati. Uh, unfortunately, a couple of weeks uh, go by and he was so severely burned um, that, you know, he succumbed to his injuries. But the things that impacted me about that fire was one, uh, you know, learning and wanting to do search better because I felt like there were some things that that I could have done having a chief that was was aggressive and and told me to to get in there you know we're when it comes down to it you're you're supposed to you know put your life on the line for you know that savable life mm-hmm. uh, and then also you know some of the things that you see, or here in some of the classes about survivability profiling, which absolutely makes me sick. I, yeah, I hundred percent do not. I don't. I don't get behind the survivability profiling. It's you know, it, you know it's just <laughs> so. I said, you know, this this is this, something's got got to change. We can't keep doing this, you know, right hand, left hand wall search, need to get better at how we do things. Um, and this is, you know, back when thermal imagers were thirty, forty thousand dollars a piece. So yeah. most of your fire departments didn't have them. Yeah. Jeez. Um now we have they did have them, they were on a helmet. Yeah. So it instilled in me to really uh, get into training. So, uh, after that, I would say it was about a year after that. So I've probably been in fire service, uh, five years when I actually started getting into training. And uh, I started with teaching mod one and stuff like that for volunteers, then started working for the state. Now, of course, I, I travel around doing, doing training everywhere, but I think it was that fire that, uh, put that love of training uh, or maybe even just making me realize that, you know, training was that important. That's something needed to be done. So that's a, that brings up a good point. So as far as, you know, we'll, we'll stick with the, the, the search aspect of it. Uh, well, fire training in general, from what I've seen, isn't that realistic. Right. You know, it, it's hard to mimic the the situations that we find ourselves in all the time where we're actually, you know, doing fire attack or searching or dropping rock or venting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you come up with any ways to help make the the training more realistic uh, when it comes to search? Or do you have any uh, recommendations? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so. <clears throat> I did a little uh, uh, study uh, for our department to see kind of where we placed with other departments and and averages and and how we did on our search. And after looking at it, I said, you know, we need to. It's something that we could improve upon. So we did the uh, the Ben Inner search class. Uh, you can add the I in there. I think it's everybody kind of knows you need to need to isolate it, yeah, but, uh, yeah, just closable, you know, 
you don't even have to call it BEF. It's, it's just, we're just searching. We just yeah. happen to be going through a window. Yeah. Uh, so um, what we did was uh, through some of the conferences that I've been to, I've seen some really inventive ways to make training more realistic and everything from a window prop with actual sash that you had to beat out glass that you had to to break and and i say glass it you know it's plywood uh smoke barrel with forced air so that you get a thick smoke in there and actually having speakers in the room playing sounds on the fire ground so radio traffic chainsaws sirens stuff like that going off does no good for me to play you know metallica while you're sitting there searching you're not going to be listening to that so i kind of i kind of I, I like i like that aspect of it i've never heard of anybody using the audio uh for anything and it reminds me i i coach or not in coach i uh i worked for jordan southern football team uh, back in college and that was one thing that they harped on was you know making training real or making the practice realistic to the games but also you know, if you were going on a way game, you'd go to the stadium and they would just blast the loudest sounds possible just because that's what it's going to sound like on game day. So you're able to communicate and you kind of know what to expect a little bit better. So I do like that. Yeah. You know, you, you say that that's one of the things, you know, like Nick Saban would do. Mm-hmm. You know, he would blast opposing team uh, band yeah. while, they're, while they're practicing. And God, can you imagine a week of Rocky Top? <laughs> so, you know, when it comes down to training, you have to make it as realistic as, as you can. And the more senses that I can include into that training, so smell, sight, feel, touch, you know, everything, the the easier it is for me to make a card that you have in your brain that when it comes that time, you just pull that card out. And it's easy for you to read that card. It's easy for you to remember it. And it and it becomes more of a habit. Where if I make it unrealistic, and, I, and I'll tell you, uh, I, I, I fell into it early in instructing. Instructors are real bad about going hey i'm going to see how much heat this guy can take i'm going to melt his borks off i'm going to melt his his you know front off that doesn't teach me yeah it's hard to learn if somebody's dying in there right uh well not only that so it puts you in a in a fight or flight mode right well what are you going to learn when you're fighting in flight nothing nothing you're just trying to get out of there the other thing is i'm teaching you a bad habit that it's okay to feel that kind of heat so what I what I what I had figured out was, and going back to that search mentality and and going in here and, and getting people out. If I teach you it's okay to be superheated, then I teach you that it's okay to be in that environment, and you're not going to change that environment. If I'm feeling that heat through my gear, what's that victim feeling? A lot. So I'm going to come out 
with some sweet rubbings on my helmet. And we're going to be shaping lids, but I'm going to be pulling out a dead body because mm-hmm. I haven't cooled that environment. You know, the days of, hey, don't spray water till you get to the fire. Man, those are those are over because our fire load now is unlike any we've ever seen. And it's only going to get worse. The more, you know, the the, the more furniture we're packing, 10,000 square foot of furniture into a thousand square foot house. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen whenever all that stuff lights off? It's going to be let bad. Me, in there. But yeah, let me, let me go and talk about that. Um, let me, let me ask you. So let, let's say the, you know, it's completely hypothetical sort of thing, but it could happen one day. So let's say you're doing a, uh, VES situation you and uh your uh your tailboard you know make entry or you make the tailboard makes entry or whatever and it's pretty freaking hot in there you know it's not like a room full of flames or anything like that but it's one of those things where like hey we know the victims in that room um what do you think is the viability of having the driver somebody stand out there and just direct a very uh you know, steep stream into that, into that room while you're going in. Do you think that the, the steam and all that will, is, you know, negates the, the pluses from cooling that atmosphere or, I mean, what do you think? That That's a good point. And anybody that wants to see that in action needs to go on the YouTube and watch, uh, Fort Walton beach. Um, so the stone brothers, uh, are down there in Florida and, uh, I can't remember right off which one made the grab, but they pull up, uh, PD had gotten there first and PD being PD trying to do the most. They hear the lady on the other side of the window, the window's boarded up. So what does PD do? They take the board off, right? Not good. They start, they start, they start venting. So now they got they got this uncontrolled vent, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time they pull up, the uh, the officer, one of the Stone Brothers, and his tailboard go around to the side, and they pull a line. At the same time, the driver's pulling a line to the uh, A side. I know two lines off the rig and no no positive water supply. Holy cow! So uh, what their plan is on on a fire like this is that once everything gets set for that primary line that the officer and the tailboard are going to use that driver can flow from that a side and start knocking down that fire so what happens is they get around there they take the rest of the board off as soon as they take the rest of the board off it lights off so this is a boarded up house abandoned house you can hear the lady on the other side of the window screaming for help Room lights off, fire's blowing out the window. He directs the tailboard to flow water. The whole time he's flowing water, you can still hear the lady in there screaming for help. You know, I'm here, I'm here, come get me. They dive in, um, takes them a minute to kind of find her. She had, I think she had pulled a door over on top of her. So they have to actually get uh, get her from out from underneath the door. And then once they do, they just take her out the window. You know, 
very early in my career, I was told if you flow water from the outside, you're going to kill steam, whatever, any victim that's in there. Yeah. It didn't kill her. No. Matter of fact, when she got, when she got drug out, she was still breathing. She was still talking. Uh, so it didn't do anything because we're, that room's expanding as -hmm. it's on fire. When we start cooling it, we contract that room. And if we're using uh, a smooth bore or a very straight stream on a bog, which I would prefer not to use a bog, uh, but you're trying to keep as much water intact as you can. And like you said, if I'm if I'm putting it against the ceiling, we in the fire service used to have in the if the manuals a diagram of a firefighter outside shooting water up at the ceiling and it do a V pattern and come back down to the floor. And that's not what happens. We just travel against the ceiling. So it's not necessarily going to put the fire out, but what it is going to do is it's going to make that environment more tenable. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. You know, if, if it comes to where you're minimally staffed, you have one, uh, you know, driver, and maybe an officer. So you only got two on a rig or you got three on the rig. You're minimally staffed. You need to go ahead and start thinking about, hey, what are we going to do when we get this uh, entrapment fire and nobody else is coming? Or they're 10 minutes out. Mm-hmm. Am I just going to wait for somebody else to get there or do I have a plan in place? Yeah. Which I know for you know the listeners, people that are, from our department or one of the departments around that doesn't seem that likely, but for a lot of these uh, departments, you know, all throughout the Georgia area and I'm sure all throughout the country, that that's a very real, you know, that's every day for them. Like I was, uh, you know, I've been working with uh, Gilmer County here for a little while now. and That's pretty much every response, you know, your nearest backup is however many, you know, 10, 15 minutes away. And uh, it's, it's a real it's a real thing that a lot of guys have to think about. And it can happen to, you know, people that work in departments like ours, too. You get somebody on, there's another alarm going off somewhere else, and all of a sudden, you're the only one nearby. And you could be alone for a pretty good amount of time. Yeah, you could have your, you know, fourth, fifth due be your second due. Mm-hmm. They, they wouldn't even be on an alarm if everybody was on in service. But yet now they're going to be your second duty. And it's like, oh, yeah. shit, we're going to be here by ourselves. And, you know, yeah. especially with, um, you know, these are things that I, I you know, for, for what it's worth, I highly recommend people, you know, game plan with your, with your crews because it's very real possibility. And even if you're, you know, like in my position, I'm just an AOIC and more of a younger guy, but I like going through and sitting down with the people I'm working with and, you know, thinking about this stuff because eventually it does happen and it helps to be prepared. Yeah. And you know, what are you going to do? You pull up on a, you know, three story apartment complex, you know, you're going to be working there, you know, five minutes or so by yourself. You got fire on the first floor. It's trying to extend to the second and third. You got three people. How are you going to put a whole bunch of water on there at one time? So if you don't have that in, in, in a, in a plan a, and you don't have a plan B or a C, you're in trouble. Yep. Yeah. So if 
if you use the the deck gun and you you know, you dump uh, all your all your tank water in a matter of a couple of minutes, then that's one thing. Um, but hopefully, you guys have practice on that too, so the guy knows to aim before they before they start flowing and everything else. Well, not only that, but hopefully you've you know a big thing with me is is timing your tank and knowing your flows what you can actually flow off of that tank. Um, cause if you've got a, a 500 gallon per minute tip on the end of that deck gun, chances are, unless you have specced your apparatus out to have a larger, uh, line going from the tank to the pump, you're not going to be able to pump 500 gallons until you get a positive water supply. You know, we, we found that we were only able to get 325 gallons per minute off the deck gun off of tank water. So our tank actually lasted about a minute and 40 seconds. And then again, if you start doing things like that, you said, make, make training more realistic. People go, well, why do you, why do you want your tailboard and your driver to be able to make a hydrant in a minute and a half? Well, I want them to make it in a minute and a half with a, you know, 25 foot section, because guess what? That's how long it takes me to dump my tank off of a deck gun. And again, another good uh, video to watch is the video in Houston where they get a 911 hang up call, ends up being a working fire in a high rise, a residential high rise. The first due engine that gets there. They dump all their water through the deck gun. They only lose flow for about five or 10 seconds, but they change the entirety of that fire. It goes from thick black smoke. You can't even see the building to now you can see the building in a matter of a minute. And that changes that whole situation to where now those people that were thinking about tying sheets together and coming off of a balcony railing that probably isn't going to hold them. Now, now they're, you know, their chances of survival have gone up uh, greatly because you've taken away that smoke, that heat, those gases. Uh, but again, if you don't, if you don't know all that stuff, you haven't timed your tank, you don't know your flows, uh, you don't even know if you're flowing the right amount off of your pre-connects um, because hose, uh, the pump, all of that can change your flows. And I've th seen things, same hose, same size, just one was older, one was newer. They got a new set of hose in and it had 40 pounds of friction loss more. It was just a bad run of hose. And, and as for, at the very least, you know, you, you do all that, it gives you an idea of, you know, your capabilities, what you work, what you can realistically do with that engine. Right. And that, that goes to, you know, kind of what I think is, is important for, uh, somebody coming into the fire service. You know, I think there's a physical aspect to this job. Now I don't, expect everybody to be working out three hours a day, seven days a week. But if you're eating, you know, 
chips and nachos and sitting in front of the TV and watching watching uh, Jerry Springer all day at the fire station. Well, that's what you're going to get whenever you show up. Yeah. Because when people call 911, unfortunately, you know, we like to say, uh, you know, they're our customers. Well, a customer would get to choose what they get, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our people that we service, they get what's coming because there is no 912. There's 911, and that's it. So when we show up, whatever we front loaded, that's what we get whenever we get there. If we front loaded Jerry Springer and Maury and who the father is, that's what we're going to get at three o'clock in the morning when that mama's out in the front yard screaming about her baby inside. If we go out there and we've trained an hour or two every shift, we spend 15, 20, 30 minutes a day just reading something on our off time because this isn't a job that you can just turn off. You know, it's, it's, it's like this podcast. Why are people listening to this podcast? Hopefully they're trying to get something. Thing. Yeah, they're trying to get something out of it to make themselves better. So, so let me let me let me ask you this. So you you have what? How many years on the job? Is it twenty seven? Yes, twenty seven. Uh, so twenty seven years on the job. You, you know you. You've worked for a couple of different departments and you've spent uh, a good majority of that career in what's one of the busier departments of the country. You're a you know captain for a, at a station that is, you know, probably the second busiest, if not the busiest station in the county. You get a lot of ex- hands-on experience and your crew gets a lot of hands-on experience, but you still seem obviously pretty eaten up with training and eaten up with the job and everything. To those people that you hear from time to time, like, oh, you know, we don't need to train. We, we get enough, um, we do this enough on the job. That's how we're going to learn. You know, how, one, what do you have to say to that? And also, how have you kind of kept yourself in that mindset of, you know, like, yeah, I do this all the time, but I need to, you know, do all this training that you're talking about and doing the, these little things that add up success on the background. It drives me absolutely crazy to say somebody have somebody tell me that they do it so much because I can do something a thousand times and I can frig it up a thousand times just because I do it a bunch does not mean I'm proficient at it. The proficiency comes from training and our training needs to be perfect. I've seen pictures where people will train and they've got absolute pinched five inch hose coming to the rig i've seen training where they charge the hose bed the five inch off the hose bed like how are we allowing that to be acceptable i i did i did also want to just quick quick digression and i'm gonna do a, a shameless plug for you here real quick um if you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, Cap was recently on the uh, Blue Collar Fireman's, uh, I guess it's their training app application or whatever. It, uh, yeah, he did. He did a driver's class, uh, really, really good class. But some of these, some of these situations that you're speaking of right now were, were some of the pictures that you showed in that class. And I was just really confused as to a lot, how a lot of those things happened. I mean, it was, 
the 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 charge hose bed by my crew and I at uh, at Gilbert. We were watching. Uh, I showed them. And we spent probably about 10 minutes trying to figure out how that even happened. And then the other one was the, uh, the, the, like the, the thief, the appliance put into the discharge that, that was. Yeah. So they, they used a, uh, a Siamese to come into the discharge side of the pump with the water supply. That was something different. <laughs> And the, I mean, those are, the, yeah. the scary thing is that's at a scene that's at a working fire. You know, uh, I did, did have some that were from training, uh, that, that had happened. But if we allow that, if you allow that as a driver, if I allow that as a, as a company officer, and I'm saying that that's acceptable during training, then that's what they're going to do at uh at at a working job you know who do you <laughs> who do you want uh pulling up to that fire you know do you want elmer fudd you want elmer fudd pulling up to your house fire or do you want somebody like uh Sully solenberg who landed a plane with no engines in the hudson and saved everybody you know what uh one of the things that I, I liked about Sully, and uh I'll try to get it as close as I as I can for what he said, but you know, he said that the 40 years of training and flying time that he had built up to that day. So if he didn't have all that training and all that flying time, so not only the training, but the actual legitimate of flying the airplane, he would have never have been able to do that. So I want Sully to come up to my fire, not Elmer Fudd. Yeah. And Very I think good. sometimes Very we good. let, we let our ego and our arrogance get in the way that we run so many calls we run so many fires that we don't need to train and we don't need to get out there. But even with the amount of fire that, that we're lucky enough to get at a place like where we work, I mean, it still doesn't add up. I mean, in a year you're running at the high end, what, 30, 40, maybe if you're lucky. Yeah. I ran, I ran 31 last year, you know, and that's, Obviously, that's a lot compared to, you know, pretty much everywhere else. But, like, but still only, you, you, you're still only getting to do, you know, whatever your job is for that. Like, let's say your first end, then, you know, you're on fire attack or whatever. You're still, that's only like 30 times for, what, 5, 10, 15 minutes at most usually. You know, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's enough to really get proficient just by showing up sort of thing yeah because your your proficiency is you know repetitively doing it perfectly you know pulling the line getting the line stretched because however however that first line goes that's how the fire is going to go so you pull the line it's floppy it 
it gets tangled up. It's got a bunch of kinks in it. We fight with it for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds here, 30 seconds there. We don't have time to do that. The fire's growing that whole time. If we're talking that there's victims trapped in there, they're losing their survivability chance. Mm-hmm. So every minute that that victim is in the fire, they lose 10% chance of survival. So you're slow getting out of the house. You're slow getting your stuff on. You're slow deploying the line. You slow forcing a door. Because you don't have any proficiency in any of that. Mm -hmm. By the time you get up there, they might have a 30% chance of survival. That's not acceptable to me. No. And a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, too, is, in my opinion, very basic, you know, basic skills. Uh, and it's not that hard from what I've seen. If you put in a little bit of effort to make, to be able to train on it, just so, you know, I think you kind of mentioned it earlier you know it's not like you're out there on the training ground 12 hours a day every single day i think that there's a lot of different ways to incorporate the little things that we do all the time like deploying lines throwing ladders you know forcing doors a little bit harder but you can always build a prop or you know go down and do something but um where you can be can be in you can be a little bit insane like me and have your own forcible entry door there you go you know (laughs) Call <laughs> Captain Ten, but uh, but no, no. What, what I'm getting at is that you know, like, I mean, I've built hose bed props before to get around dudes that you know, like some guys don't like. Some guys don't like having to pull shit off the rig, which whatever you know. Okay, well, we're gonna build this prop then, and it'll be uh, you know, it, it's a crew build, a crew team building sort of thing, and then you can use that all the time. And there's no, there's no way to you know. You can't say no to that, right? Um, th- there's there's a lot of different things that I think that you can do. I mean, even if you pull lines off your engine, you don't have to go out of service for that. You still have all that other hose, right? It doesn't take that long to everybody pull line here or there and then make sure everything's done correctly, load it back up, and then do that every shift for however long. I mean, by the it all just kind of stacks up on itself, catching the plug. Most fire just the stations have plugs outside of their firehouse, right? That's something that you definitely don't need to have go out of service for to get proficient at. And I've noticed anytime just about that anything's gone wrong on a fire I've been on, it's been something basic. You know, it's not like some, you, you know, jumping off of a fucking out of a window or some shit like some advanced shit like that. It's always some basic shit that somebody fucks up or that goes wrong. So now I, I, I feel the benefit of really hammering in on those basics over and over and over again. So you can't get it wrong. I, I personally don't think it takes that much energy and effort to do either. You got to use the time that they give you. If I'm, if I'm waiting for a transport and I'm, I'm at some apartment complex and I've got a stable patient, and I look at the driver, I say, hey, I'm going to leave you in here. Uh, we're going to go stretch a line. And we stretch a line while we're waiting. We had to wait anyway. 
Mm-hmm. I just use that as a as an opportunity. Or let's say I go through an alarm bell. What if I'm on an alarm bell, right? Pull up on a high rise. Got an alarm bell. Pack all the hose up. Take it up with us. Make our connections. Do a dry stretch. Even though it's a false false alarm. And I turn that alarm into training. You know, like I said, we don't we don't have to go out of service. Instead of being at the alarm bell for 10 minutes, we're there for 15 minutes. Okay. But I got a stretch in. I got a deployment. You know, and that's going to be high-rise fire. That's going to be the one, you know, that high-risk, low-frequency mm-hmm. event that when it comes down to it, if if we haven't put forth the training in it because we don't run a lot of high-rise fires, it's going to go south real quick. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we I, I, was, I was joked about it when I was over at 6. I was like, you know, you can see the high-rises at a distance uh, looking into Atlanta. And then, you know, technically, uh, six is uh, immediate is uh, second due to ones. So, like, I always, always think about it. Like, oh, man, the high-rise fire bangs out. We're probably going to be on it. That's going to be insane. So, yeah, no, I, I see I see what you mean. Just getting the uh, opportunity to, you know, do something. Just take, take advantage of that time. Like, even, you know, a, I, I've thrown ladders on, uh, you know, sitting there waiting on patient or waiting on AMR. Uh, or the ambulance service, whatever. Um, but yeah, I was throwing ladders at apartment buildings, just looking around. Some of the the biggest uh, points of my territory in building construction, things like that, that I've learned have come from sitting there waiting on the stoop for the ambulance to show up. You know, just taking a few minutes, just like you said, and look around, ask ask each other, hey, you know house over here you know catches on fire what do we know about these kind of houses because you look at neighborhoods they're usually built pretty similarly right you know with a couple variations there and there you can pick up little things and then you know you never even know maybe that house that you talked about you'll be at later that night it happens all the time so and and uh this is this this is a absolute true story one shift we go to a house uh, we go in, we talk about the house and the layout of the house. It had a converted garage. We talk about the converted garage and the living space in there. The next shift, the next shift, we're over there fighting the fire. The fire started in the converted garage. Everything that we talked about, that shift before, came back to that tailboard firefighter. Knew how mm-hmm. to make the turns. Knew, hey, when I come up to this garage, there's going to be a step down. So if I'm not careful, I'm going to trip and fall, bust my butt, you know, getting into there. So he was cautious getting into there. Uh, now, does that happen all the time? Absolutely not. But you may have a fire at a similar location, not the exact location, but a similar location. And if you didn't take the time on that that med call or the service call to talk about what would happen if this uh, house was on fire, then you don't have anything to pull from. Uh, You know, people will always look at somebody and mistake uh, passion for aggression. And that's because they're unmotivated. 
So the unmotivated person will look at somebody with passion for the job as, oh, they just, they just have this uncontrolled aggression. Uh, and it's because they're unmotivated. Now, there's certain ways to make people motivated. You know, I've had my guys sent off and they walk into the station and they say, hey, you get to take it easy today. You don't have to worry about doing all that training y'all do over at y'all station. And I take that as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. People know. You know for, for my company that, you know, when my guys get sent off, they're, they're told to take it easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't. I think one of the things, you know, we in the fire service now are coming to a time when we see people leave the fire service like I've never seen before. And I think part of the way to keep people interested in the fire service is through something like that and through training. Now, there's several other things, but, you know, keeping somebody uh involved and engaged through training uh building relationships because basically what you want to do to that new firefighter coming in is kind of put blinders on Mm -hmm. you know not that he's going to sit there and not look somewhere else but it's just not going to look interesting to that firefighter because man over here i've got this relationship with the captain or the driver, you know, we go out, uh, after shift, you know, we have company outings. We, we do good training. Uh, we make beds, simple things. We make beds as a company. Somebody hollers out, make beds. We eat together as a company. You know, one of the things that, that, that you asked is, you know, some of the traditions that the fire service needs to keep. That's some of the traditions that the fire service needs to keep. Eating together, making beds together, spending that time off together, you know, where you're outside of work, you're just having a good time. That's, that's what I would like to see the fire service, you know, keep around. And it, it does make it hard, especially for somewhere like DeKalb where people travel, you know, an hour, hour and a half, two hours, some people mm-hmm. to work. It's still it makes it hard to get together. Yeah. But even let's say you can't do the big, you know, or the outing all the time or whatever, you can do it once or twice a year or something like that. And then, you know, really hammer home the, those, uh, those things that you do together as a crew when you're on duty. Um, I think that all of that completely agree with literally all of that i think it has it goes a big ways it goes big towards uh creating that connection with that person and i, I think it's twofold it creates that connection and then it also you know it makes the job fun you know i mean it makes people want to come to work and i think if you happen to be like some higher up chief listening to this or something i have i highly recommend that you promote that sort of atmosphere and that sort of um culture among your department because that's what's going to keep people it's the connection to where they work and the connection to their people that's 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 what's going to keep them there more than anything you know yeah because you know (laughs) it's it's always funny to hear people say something like you know hey why why'd you join the fire service what will most people say 
Well, you know, uh, I wanted to help people. That's one of the most overused <laughs> statements I hear. That's not that's that's not what we're here for. You know, that would be like uh, you know an NFL player saying, uh, "Why did you, you know, go into the NFL?" Well, I wanted to play with a football. That, that that's not why they went into the NFL. Mm-hmm. They went into the NFL to become a professional. And their mindset going into the NFL was, I'm going to become the best that there is at whatever position it is that I'm playing. And that's the way the fire service needs to be. You need to join the fire service to be the best. So whatever position it is that you're at, if you're at the tailboard position, you're you're riding seat, you're driving, you're chief officer, you should be striving to be the best. So you should be, you know, self-reflecting on where you're at. You have to be self-motivated. Yes. You know, how do you stay motivated to train? You have to do that. That That's something that is self-motivating that you have to take upon yourself. Because it's, it's hard work to attain the next level in our job. You know, that that true proficiency at the job. And to be the best firefighter that there is, you know, we're never, probably never going to attain that status of, you know, being perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you think you're, you're perfect in this career is it may be time to step away. Yeah. Cause if you're not constantly trying to improve yourself, you know, that that's where the issue comes in because we let that ego and arrogance get in the way. And the job has a good way of humbling you once you do start thinking that way too. Yeah, it'll it'll throw something at you, you know, to let you know, hey, you're not you're not where you need to be, um, you know, and then, you know.